This recording is a production of the Conservative Anabaptist Education Committee. This presentation was recorded at Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute 2018, held in Harrisonburg, Virginia, on March 2 and 3. Good morning. It's good to be here with you today, and I'm glad to see each of you here as well. I sometimes wonder which is more valuable, formal discussion or informal discussion. Apparently, boards would prefer informal discussion, but thanks for coming back in here. We have uh, this question before us. Does your school endorse learning by heart? I don't know what first came to your mind when you read that. I've been asking some people what they, what they think, and some of them look at me funny and say, well, we don't know what you're talking about. Maybe, maybe that was your response. Others say, well, apparently you're going to talk about memorization. And uh, yes, we probably cover some things on memorization, although I'd say it uh, implies things deeper, which if you thought about it for any length of time, you know that's true. <clears throat> I would like to start here um, by saying that this, this session follows logically from what Jonas already introduced us to. So we have this in our heads now that the teacher is very important but the teacher still has to come to school and cause the student to learn. And that can be a big job. So this is an evaluation session for you to sit back and think about how your school is doing with that. How are you leading your children to learn to love the truth? And I would like to start by considering a phrase that we use in the English language. We're familiar with it, we've heard it often. You've probably said it yourself. When we hear it, we immediately know what is implied. I know it by heart. Now, someone mentions a, a scripture passage or a poem or a song and you say, oh yes, I know that by heart. And you may even begin to recite it. And that's good, but what do you mean when you say, I know it by heart? Um, in literature class, we would call this <clears throat> an idiom, which means that we know intuitively what it means, but it's hard to really define it. How would you define it? I know it by heart. So you said you can recite it with your head. What if I said, oh, I know it by head? Ah, that doesn't quite cut it, does it? I know it by head, it sounds absurd. You laugh, you say, that sounds too mechanical, it's void of feeling. And you're right. We don't say, I know it by head, we say, I know it by heart. So are we suggesting then that um, something happens when we put information in our heads? It kind of goes beyond the circuits of the brain after a while and drops about 18 inches into the heart. See, when you say, I know it by heart, there's a light in your eye and there's a passion in your voice and you're feeling it here, right? So it's maybe a deeper concept than, than just memorization. And can you explain how that happens? Can you tell me how to get students to take information that's up in their heads and to put it down in their heart? If you can solve that for me, you, I, I'll work for you cheaper, I think. 
Um, it would make my job a whole lot easier. But that, there have been a lot of books written um, on education, and I don't know if anyone has ever defined the process better than God himself. And so I'll take you to a passage that I think you know by heart. It is this one. I wonder how many times this passage has come up in CASB over its history. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 through 9. We'll look at the first verse just to establish the context here. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And so we have this, this scale here, this span of time between where a child doesn't know and he moves through and he comes to a place where he passionately says, I know it by heart. What all happened in there to bring him to that place? Well, I know for sure, like we already said, it starts with a teacher who also has it in his heart. That's where it has to start. So these words which I command thee this day shall be in the teacher's heart. And then look at all this homework. And thou shalt teach them, and thou shalt talk of them, and thou shalt bind them, and thou shalt write them. And uh, there, there is a tremendous amount of work involved. So we would say that crucial to a child coming to a place where he says, I know it by heart, there's going to be a lot of hard work. Why? In verse 12, God says why. So when you come into the land, beware lest thou forget. And so we want them to remember. And why? Why remember? God's final destination for his people is that deep within their heart, there would be a reverential fear that drives to honor and respect and obedience where his people are now saying, they, they feel it down here and they say, I, I know it by heart. And so what all is happening in that span of time? I'm gonna suggest that at least three things happen. Um, discipline, retention, and conviction. Maybe more things happen. I'm sure there are. But let's just think for a little bit about those three things. I'm sure that if, for every child who has ever come to passionately say, I know it by heart, I'm sure that these three things have happened. I'm not even sure they happened in this order, but they happened. Discipline, retention, and conviction. Let's look at each one just a little bit, and I will try very hard to make this practical to boards because I'm used to talking to students and teachers. So let's look at a quote here, thinking about discipline to start with, to get this process started. That which is learned at the cost of effort is not soon forgotten. And so the teacher has this big agenda, lots of effort. We're gonna work hard this year. But students, uh, they have human nature and they have the tendency to take the path of least resistance. And so 
Um, that's what makes the job challenging. The path of least resistance. And so they slouch in their seat and they don't really want to be motivated and they don't really want to do the homework. And the teacher has to encourage, come on, we're going to do this. And students are professional at appearing stressed out. And students are a, a professional at going home and convincing their parents that they're stressed out. And parents are professional at convincing the school boards that their children are stressed out. Have you ever sat in school board meetings like this? Where you had to decide what to do about stress levels or too much homework or the teacher has this beautiful agenda and parents aren't really all that excited about it. So maybe some questions we could ask. How do we keep discipline healthy? How do you keep discipline from becoming demoralizing? Sometimes you hear that. Well, we don't want them to get demoralized. Actually, if you study history, you find that children have a long way to go sometimes before they get demoralized. They tend to think they're demoralized way before they really are. Okay, so how can we make the students enjoy working hard? How can we trick them into working hard without thinking about it? That would be fun. Um, I find that challenging, to try to trick them into working hard without them thinking about it. Uh, I had that happen just this last week. Um, for a physics project, we made rubber band cars in a big competition, and the students started staying after school to make these cars, it's five o'clock, I wanna go home, they're still there. If I made you stay here to that time, you'd be telling your parents and they'd be calling the school board. Go home, oh no, no, we wanna win, we're gonna, we're gonna be here. Uh, Wednesday night, a boy called me at 8.30, he wanted to figure out how to break in the school because he needed stuff, he was still there working on his car. But there's only so many rubber band cars you can make. Sometime you finally have to get down and do the hard stuff. Um, and and this, th these are the challenges we face. So there's a lot of things we could say, but let's just talk a little bit about um, that frustrating position when you're in a meeting, maybe with your teachers, and things aren't going well with, with making them want to work hard. One of the first questions I like to talk with teachers about if things aren't going well there is are, how are you using creativity? How are you can, you, can you use a different approach for once? Does it have to be the same old way every day? Um, we like to talk about that as teachers. And maybe you as boards can instigate that discussion. One time I had a boy who could not pass my history test. And so uh, I said, well, why don't you stay after school with me and we will try to see what we can do to help you pass. He just couldn't do it. And so he stayed after school and I tried to think about what, what is his way? What's unique for him? And his thing is he loves to stand behind the podium and tell stories. He just loves to preach. That's the way he is. So I said, well, you take my podium, go back in the closet and you preach your notes to an imaginary 50 people. Okay. So he took his podium. I heard him back there going, back there preaching. And he came out and he said, I think I know it. Okay, good, go over and tell the second grade teacher. Oh, okay, so he went over and told her all about it. And then he came back and then he went and told the seventh and eighth grade teacher. Yeah, and he passed the test. <laughs> um, I had a girl once who could not sit still. And so um, I said, well, why don't you take your notes, all oh, stressed out about a big test. 
go out and just walk around the softball field. You can walk. So she took her notes, and I saw her out there going all the way around the softball field. And uh, she passed too. Now, I haven't had success every time. Those are just examples. This one uh, I think is really important. Does hard work lead to progress? And if your class is all bogged down and it's been a while that the teacher just stood back and said, listen, class, let's just think about how far we've come. And, 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 and let the students see that and remind them of that. Or, in a different way of thinking about it, what about the poor struggling soul that can never pass? Is there a way to adjust things so that he can feel progress? I once um, bought into a marketing strategy. There was a history curriculum that was advertising that their, their curriculum was better than other history courses because it tested critical thinking skills. And I bought the idea and I bought the curriculum. And I was soon disappointed because it tested critical thinking skills okay. And I'm not against critical thinking entirely. But uh, for some reason, the straight A's seem to be able to pass these things all the time. Without, I wasn't even sure they were really doing a lot of studying. And, but the struggling, they would go home and study hard and they could never pass. And that's not fair. And so I thought, well, what can I do? Um, so I didn't think I knew very much about making tests, but I ditched the test and decided to make my own. And so the first thing I did is I said, okay, everybody, here's a paper that tells you exactly what's going to be on the test. Ooh. Is that cheating? I don't know, but that's what I did. An objective sheet. That's what we call them at our school. This is exactly what's going to be on the test. But then to compensate on the effort side, I made the test really hard. No multiple choice, no matching, no word banks or boxes, just blanks and essays. And I wasn't sure about my approach. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. So they started taking these, and I was not prepared for what I got in return. The first surprise was that the straight A's started bombing them. That was refreshing. I'd been waiting on that. <laughs> I, had, I had one straight A student tell me I never studied for a test in my entire years of school until you started making these things. And I said, well, congratulations. You finally hit a wall. And uh, the other thing that um, really pleased me was is that those strugglers would go home and take their paper and study, and they could come. And if they applied themselves, they made marked improvement. And I like that. I still don't really know if I'm doing it all right, but, but I like that they can feel progress. I have some students who have failed grades who are now in that course making 90s on their tests. Um, and the, the third thing that those tests show me is that um, it almost shows me at a glance who is studying and who isn't. In fact, I don't call them memorization-based tests anymore. I call them discipline tests because I can tell exactly <laughs> who studied and who doesn't. If a boy comes to me and says, I studied. No, you didn't. You had your earbuds in your ear and you were playing a game while you were studying. And I can tell. How do I know? Because of your grade. Um, anyway, usually it ends up being the truth. Uh, something else that maybe you could ask. Do, um, do teachers use external motivation appropriately? You know, one of the reasons homework loads may be out of control is because in study period, at the end of the day, the teacher has boys goofing off. 
And then there went that period, and now they've got to take it all home, and now the parents are upset. What's with all this work? And maybe you as a board can go in and sit in those periods and say, all right, boys, what are we going to get done in this period? If you don't get this done, there's going to be consequences. External motivation. You might be surprised how the backs straighten up and they get to work. If a board member comes in and says that. How many things do you know today by heart and feel passionately about that at one time that process started because your dad gave me a good hard spanking? I know I can think of some. I'm sure you can too. I had an interesting experience with my son recently. I was reading one of those fascinating articles about um, how these university research teams research whether spanking is really good or if it's detrimental to children. And that one, maybe you read the article, that one research team in Texas studied 160,000 cases spanning five decades, and they determined, of course, that spanking is detrimental and makes angry adults. And I had never discussed this with my children, so I thought, I wonder what my children would say about this. So in all mock seriousness at the supper table, I said, um, guess what, children? They put a committee together and they figured out that uh, spanking is detrimental. They studied 160,000 children. They figured out that this is bad. And my seven-year-old son said, Dad, they are so wrong. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, Javen. Wait a minute. These are highly trained professionals. They have degrees behind them. I don't care. They are still, they are wrong. I said, well, how do you know? Because it works. <laughs> and I mean, you could have fooled me. I'd given up on the boy. I, I, I was hoping he would say that by the time he was 18. But um, apparently, well, we know. We know that this thing works. Absolutely. So good, healthy discipline is essential to learning by heart. We're going to move on to the next word. But uh, I hope you enjoy discussions with your teachers thinking about motivation and discipline. Retention. Back to this verse again. Why go to all this work? Lest thou forget. And I wish I knew. I have puzzled over this a lot. How can I make it stick? in their heads permanently. Now, I know they're not going to remember everything. They can't. We can't expect them to remember everything, but there's some things I really don't want them to forget. Have you determined in your school what the minimum really important things is that you do not want your students to forget? If they live to be a hundred, have you thought about that? There's some things that maybe they can forget, but what don't you want them to forget? And how can you, how can the teachers um, help with retention? Well, here again, I have to decide what, what to say and what has to be let unsaid. But let's think for a little bit about this question. What is the scope and sequence for your school, and how is it different from CLEs? Now, maybe you don't know where I'm going, but let me try to explain. Uh, maybe you bo new board members don't even know what a scope and sequence is, but it's, it's a layout for when we will teach what. 
Okay, when we will teach what coming up through the grades. And so just think about this. Um, CLE and Rod and Staff and other publishing companies, they have a business to run. And they have to appeal to a broad range of schools and ways of doing school. And so they want to offer a product that, that appeals to all. And you know what I hear when I go down here to these advisory meetings at CLE? These CLE reps, they, 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 they go around to these schools and here's a first or second year teacher and they're trying to teach the entire textbook, just whipping their way through it and they can't get it all done. And um, they're supposed to, and they're just flying through it. And at the end of the year, man, we made it to page 400. Very good. But by July, the students have forgotten it all. They whipped their way and hyperventilated their way the whole way through that book. And, um, and who remembered what even happened? And how many times do you teach, say, um, U.S. history to your students in school? In my school, we do it in um, fifth and sixth grade. We do it in seventh and eighth grade. And we do it again in high school. So are we going to do this fast overview all three times? Well, no. About eight years ago, I don't know how long, it's been a good while, we sat down as a board, and I think we probably spent 10 meetings trying to put together a scope and sequence that was unique to our school. Yeah, I think we had CLE scope and sequence there to help us, but we did some real cutting back. Um, why, in, instead of using the big, fast, rapid-fire overview approach, why don't you knock it back and go deeper on some things. In fifth and sixth grade history, maybe you could camp out on the Indian section. And, and for us, states and capitals. I still have students come up through high school. Oh, I know the states and capitals. Yeah, we did that in fifth and sixth grade. And just park there until they know it by heart. And years down the road, they still remember the meaningful times where they went deep with certain subjects. Civil War, breezed right over it in one lesson. We'll get to Civil War later. In seventh and eighth grade, maybe we um, focus on industry and inventions. In high school, maybe ideas and politics. And by the time the student has left our school, yeah, they've had a good range of history and they also had the opportunity to go nice and deep on some things. And it makes it much more meaningful for the student. It makes it much more meaningful for the teacher. But you as a board will have to help them think through that and think how the, see the big picture of it. And you also probably have to help them to make their own tests because the canned tests from the publishing company won't fit that program very well. Uh, and that'll take some work, but it'll be worth it. And I think I can almost guarantee that you'll be pleased with the retention rates. And then something else. Um, walk into your school in the month of May and just notice how that whole final test environment is going on. Did the teacher wait all the way to May and then all of a sudden decide, hey, we're going to have a final test? And whoa, everybody goes down. Well, we forgot this a long time ago. And they try to resurrect all these ideas and get ready for a final test. No, there's a much better way. 
Back off some work if you have to, but prepare throughout the year for a cumulative, ongoing, final test. I have been richly blessed in the years that I have tried that. It is, it is so much more refreshing. By the time you get to May, the students are like, bring on the test. We know it. I hardly had to study. And we've been doing this all year. Some of you, some of your teachers probably have a long chant that they work through. I've heard teachers do that already, um, that they recite throughout the year. It keeps getting longer and longer. And by the time they're ready for the test, um, they're just, bring it on. Usually about halfway through this test, some student will raise their hand and they'll say, I, I just can't push my pencil fast enough. It's just pouring out. And the one I really like is when um, the student comes back two or three years later, maybe even after they've been out of school, and they say, you know, I'd still like to take that test again. I'm pretty sure I could still pass. That is refreshing also. My history test has become quite large over the years because, because the students get into it. It's now up around 300 terms where they just fill in the blank. It's about 15 pages long. I don't think a curriculum company would make a test like that. But they like it. They think it's a challenge. And so they do it because of the cumulative approach, um, keeping it going all year. And um, they wish they could come back and take the test. I would like to take that test again. You know what I really like about that phrase? What they are really saying to me when they say, I would like to take that test again, what they're really saying to me is, I have come to believe that this is important. And that's where you, that's where you want to get them. When a student is saying that I believe something is important. Dad, do you know this? No, I don't know. I do. It's important to know, Dad then you're getting somewhere. You're getting close to this. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in teaching has been this one. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. You see, it's not just up here clogging up the uh, brain waves. It's starting to burn down deep. I believe that this is important. And this gets close to our next word, which is conviction. And here the process is almost complete. It's now in the heart. And the student is saying, I know this. And there's a light in the eye. And there's a passion in the voice. And there's a burn in the heart. I have a quote here for you to consider. Comprehension is when the lights have come on in the head and the student says, I know this. Conviction is when the lights have come on in the heart and the student says, I need this. And there is no greater magnet for pulling truth from the head to the heart than believing that you need it. And so make them think they need it is the great challenge that we have. And so it is essential that our educational systems and our schools be solidly anchored in the truth because needs are going to come into these children's lives. And when the needs come, they're going to reach up for something that you taught them maybe, that they learned in your school, and they're going to grab a hold of it and they're going to pull it down. 
And they're going to anchor their life on it and believe it and trust in it. Some of you know that this has been a difficult year for our school. Um, In January, we lost our second grade teacher, Sister Jessica, to brain cancer. I had Jessica as a student in school years ago. And I gave them a challenge back in those days. I challenged them that to take the entire year's Bible memory and at the end of the year be able to stand up and say it in one standing. Some of you maybe do that. I think it's a good discipline, a good thing to do. I've never had many students take that up, take that challenge up. Jessica was one who did. I still remember her. She was an excitable person and standing in front of the room trying to remember about halfway through and I'm sitting there wondering if she's going to make it. But she made it all the way to the end. About a month after she graduated, she um, became aware that she had a brain tumor, a need. And she reached up and grabbed a hold of truth and anchored her soul in it. And her favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I have for you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. That was her verse. And she was always a person that you could count on, a young person. Her life would always be grounded in the truth. You never had to worry that she was what she was doing. And we very soon asked her to teach for us. She taught with us for eight years until this fall the tumor came back. And I don't know how you lead students through an experience like that. We took that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, and we had our music teacher write it into a song that we hope to sing on the final program. Because they're going to have needs too in life. And maybe when the needs come, they'll reach up and claim the same thing that uh, Sister Jessica did. This is where secular education is so out to sea. Their young people are taught that you can't know absolute truth. And so when their needs come into their life, what do they reach up and grab? They go to their Google bar. They're so impressed with that Google bar. We have all this information at our fingertips. And so they have a need in their life. And they start typing, ah, I don't like that one. And so they type, ah, I don't like that one. You know why? Because in school they were taught that the way to arrive at truth is to ask yourself these interesting questions. Like sit all the little children down and say, how does this make you feel? And what does this mean to you? Children don't want to answer those kind of questions. They want you to tell them. Tell me the truth. Indoctrinate your children with the truth and don't be ashamed of it. I proudly indoctrinate my children with the truth. I don't care what Richard Dawkins wants to accuse me of. And when the needs come into those children's lives, they are confused. We have never had so much information at our fingertips and we have never been so confused. Information at the fingertips. 
tons of information at the fingertips is not the same thing as knowing it by heart. There is a world of difference. And I hope you believe that. This is the cut and paste generation. They cut and they paste and they cut and they paste. But what does cut and pasting do? Cut and pasting bypasses the head and the heart. And so they remain confused. And I kind of worry sometimes about where we are with all this. I'm sitting in a discussion with some friends and we wonder something. And so someone grabs the phone. Oh, oh put the phone away. Would you? Let's just let the question hang up there for 30 seconds and think about it, please. Like we used to do in the old days. I don't know if I even want an answer. Let's just think about it and talk about it and, and wrestle with it. God deliver us from cut and pasting. David set us a good example here. Something I'm afraid our generation is going to have to rediscover. David knew how to wait before God. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Does your school endorse learning by heart? The next time you hear a student or someone say, oh, I know it by heart, and you see the passion in their eyes and you feel it, they really love it, and they know it by heart. The next time you hear someone say that, think about what all went into that. Multiple board meetings, maybe. Hours of teacher preparation. Hours in the evening reviewing with mom. Maybe a good heart spanking by dad. And one other thing. God reaching down and orchestrating circumstances so that the child develops a need. Sometimes people say, do you have any hope for this new generation? I mean, they're addicted to their phones, they're addicted to YouTube. Yeah, I do kind of have some concerns, but I do have hope because just like God worked need into my life, he's going to work need into their lives. And so be positive about it. Yeah, they are kind of addicted to their phones right now, but sometime there's going to be a crunch time. And when that time comes, what are they going to reach up for? hopefully the truth, that you were busy instilling into their lives. Lord, bless you at that work as you bring children to love the truth. Lord, bless you. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.